Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I think it was about a year ago my wife and I attended the Van Gogh immersive experience in Pittsburgh. Some of you have been to that particular exhibit. I mean, five million people have been to it all over our country, and it was really a magnificent experience. In the exhibit, Van Gogh's paintings, uh, some of them now animated actually via new technology, are shown uh, throughout a single room on each wall of the room, and they're paired with this lovely contemplative melancholic music and onlookers are um, really immersed by uh, every single one of Van Gogh's masterpieces. Uh, It's a very moving experience. But what you may not know is there is a a tragic backstory to Van Gogh. A friend of mine actually wrote about it today. Uh, He does little devotionals online, and this was his devotional for today. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh died at the age of 37. Uh, from a fatal gunshot wound. He started painting after he failed as an art dealer and as a Christian missionary to the coal miners of Belgium. After being raised as a pastor's son, by the way. He painted uh, the famous sunflowers uh, and 850 works in 10 years before he took his own life. He sold only one painting during his lifetime. He is often casually dismissed as the crazy man who cut off his ear. In fact, he was a very broken Christian who struggled with addiction, mental illness, and a sense of failing to live up to all that was expected of him. It seemed that suicide had conquered the sunflowers. My friend writes, I wonder if Vincent would have painted more if he had access to medication that addressed some of his chemical imbalances that led him to despair, but I also wonder if things might have been a little different if he had heard one sermon that moved him away from a law-based moralism to the good news of God's love in Christ for helpless sinners. I hope he knows now that even in his beleaguered state that he brought so much light and beauty into the world. In many ways, this is a tragic story, but there's a little light in it, and I think it fits with our themes today from Psalm 88, which is the darkest psalm in all of the Bible. Most sad psalms in the Bible, and there are quite a few of them, conclude with words of hope, words of potential restoration, reasons for trust, in God's providence, even if at times it seems inscrutable. But not Psalm 88. Psalm 88 ends, at least in Hebrew, with the word masak, which means darkness. Darkness. Darkness is my only companion, is the English translation of it. Well, there's a lot here in Psalm 88. I can't possibly touch on everything in this passage, but I do want to speak with you tonight, very simply, about how the psalm begins and ends, I want to offer a few words about the middle of the psalm, and then I want to ground it for all of us, whether tonight we are in a 
season of despair or a season of joy. So let me begin by uh, just making a, a, a word about the authorship of this psalm. Uh, you'll notice that there are some italicized words under the heading of Psalm 88 in your bulletin. Those italicized words are in the original text, and you see that it was written by the sons of Korah, who are the sons of Korah. They're clergy, priests, and among them, it was one particular person, Haman the Ezraite, uh, who wrote this particular psalm. What do we know about him? Actually, quite a bit. He served under both King David and King Solomon, almost as a consultable, wise man, prophet, uh, priest. Uh, he was uh, seen as wiser than almost any man except Solomon. He was uh, also, interestingly enough, the grandson of Samuel. You may remember that Samuel was the last of the judges who, when Israel demanded a monarch instead of the judges, warned everybody that if they get a monarch, their life is going to turn pretty bad pretty quickly. Nevertheless, he stayed on under the monarchs to serve them in this way, and this is the only psalm that he wrote that is in the canon. I just want to point out uh, briefly that a clergyman wrote this heavy material. A minister, a priest, wrote this heavy material. That is, an agonizing, depressed, internally devastated minister found his voice and gave his voice to the world in the canon. Uh, I, I have a, a pastor friend of, a, I guess, what would be considered a megachurch, and he's a, a wonderful man in many ways, but when he talks to people who are outside of the church, have very little connection to the church, and they ask him, so, Bob, what do you do? He tells all of them that he's a motivational speaker. Not a pastor so much, but a motivational speaker. Uh, and he happens to be a sort of smiley guy anyway, and so that might not be a surprise to his hearers. But his understanding of the proclamation of the word in some ways is communicated in the phrase or in the term motivational speaker. To, in other words, excite your audiences towards some form of self-betterment. But I like the fact that this text was written by a priest uh, I uh, believe the old uh, Shinto proverb that says, never trust a monk without a limp. Uh, similarly, never trust a minister without a limp. Uh, all of us, every single one of us here on staff and every single minister you will ever meet are just like you. Uh, we are people who are damaged goods. I wish I could say otherwise, but our hope as clergymen uh, remains that God will redeem our pain and scars for our own betterment and for yours. But that this psalm was written by somebody who was in charge of worship and uh, various practices within the, within the temple who also had a broken heart. Now notice how this psalm begins as well as ends. And note the change of tone between the beginning and the ending, between the initial words and the final words between the opening of verse 1 and the closing of verse 18. So begins rather uh, optimistically, right? O oh Lord, God of my salvation. And then how it ends in verse 18. Darkness is my only companion. Okay, you'll just note, it's not uh, unclear, there's a tonal change between the opener and the closer. O oh God of my salvation. And then darkness is my only companion. Just a, a word about the beginning. O oh Lord God of my salvation. Notice he calls him Lord God or um, Yahweh Elohim. 
Uh, That's a way of referencing God's sacred name that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. That's the the name of, of, of God that Uh, distinguishes Israel's God from all others, and who is Israel's God? He is a God of salvation. He is the God who breaks into history and makes possible those things which we deem to be impossible, takes a slave tribe and turns them into a triumphant nation through the miracle of the Exodus. So he is calling out to the God uh, that he knows, the God that brings salvation, and he associates that God with good things, good things, right? Uh, I think it's important that we point this out because uh, many people throughout history have deduced based on the incredible amount of pain that is intrinsic to our current experience that if there is a God, God must be cruel. The Marquis de Sade, the sort of French sadist, wrote a lot about this, of God being like cancer to the human race, God increasing the agony of the human condition. The psalmist disagrees. The psalmist says that God leans into the good. It is God's nature to be good to people, God's nature to create salvation in the midst of a cruel and painful world. And by the way, salvation within this context um, doesn't... uh, uh, necessarily refer to escaping some sort of unpleasant afterlife. Salvation, especially within the Old Testament, means God's active deliverance of his people, whether from sin or from uh, oppression of some external sor- with some external source behind it. And so he cries out for some sort of here and now salvation, some sort of tangible deliverance from all of his experiences. And I think it's important that we begin with this passage, O Lord God of my salvation, because this whole thing is a prayer. The psalmist is addressing all of the agony that follows verse 1 to the God of his salvation. Um, The whole thing, all of the questions, cries, And the conclusion of utter sorrow occurs within the context of a prayer, a prayer to the God who saves. Now, in light of God's goodness, in light of uh, Yahweh Elohim and his power to save, uh, the psalmist is trying to understand why salvation isn't currently working as he thinks it ought to. If you're here to be my deliverer, like you were for Israel in the Exodus, Remember manna that rained from in the quail and all of the things that were done for us. Why is it not helping me now when I need it most? So he's wrestling. He's like Israel, right? One who wrestles with God. He's wrestling. And so that hopeful beginning, there's a, there's a little hope in the beginning, um, has to be contrasted a little bit with the ending where the psalmist writes, darkness is my only companion. He begins with a God of his salvation, but then says, I feel terribly alone, abandoned. I'm in the dark. The um, possible inference would be that I have distance from everybody who once loved me, and perhaps some distance from God too, or at least experiential distance. Uh, I think this is a, a needful word that we hold these two things together. Hold these two things together. That is, the same man wrote both things. He is the God of my salvation, and darkness is my only companion. Because sometimes, especially early in my own spiritual pilgrimage, I would—I don't know if I would have articulated this, but I would have assumed it, that um, theological truth and the imbibing of truth and the communicating of truth would eventually create within me a sort of Novocaine state when it came to pain, that I would be anesthetized from at least the worst of trauma, 
if I understood right things, they would fix what was aberrant in my own feelings or what I would deem to be aberrant. Well, um, I've, I've come to discover that the numbness that I once sought has not always been given to me. Uh, the psalmist, in other words, had God, but it didn't make him feel better. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. I'll allow you to, 1986. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. But really, but really, he, he didn't dispossess God. He was not apostate. He called out to the God of his salvation, and darkness is my only companion. The two for him went together. In other words, I believe one thing, but I'm feeling another thing that is discordant with my confession. And those things were brought together. Uh, so he's experiencing what analysts would call disintegration. Disintegration. God is God, and I feel utterly alone. I believe one thing, I feel another thing. What is the point of, and the contrast between these two things? Sometimes pain in life is so great and grave that nothing makes sense at all. Nothing makes sense. Because what you're experiencing day to day doesn't seem to fit with all of the things that you've learned in church and through conversations and good counseling and uh, all, all sorts of insights that have come from the believing world. Um, sometimes the pain makes things discordant. I have a friend whose father died of an aggressive cancer uh, early in life, and uh, she then discovered two months later that her mother was also now riddled with cancer. And the doctors initially uh, gave the gave a success rate regarding operations and chemotherapy, a success rate <clears throat> of 10%. Now, within a few weeks and after a few <clears throat> um, surgeries, they were able to give her a, a better uh, percentage of survival. Now it was about 60% survival rate. And uh, they decided all of them to leave. Uh, they were at uh, uh, Yale New Haven Hospital. They decided to get out of the hospital and just sit on the lawn, and they opened up a bottle of champagne, which was probably illegal. Um, but all of them, including the mother, were drinking the champagne on the lawn late at night. And my friend, who was a Christian, and, and said, Mom, I want you to know I prayed for you every day, and I'm delighted to know about this chance of recovery. And the brother, who was definitely not a Christian, took my friend aside and said, You know, I bet you're happy now because of your Christian faith that your that mom might survive. But but what about the fact that she got the cancer in the first place? What about that? Well, yeah, what about that? So there was a tension for my friend between her own faith and turnarounds, God who intervenes, and tension between why did we ever inherit this thing in the first place with the father first, then the mother second. And I believe that if we've lived long enough in this room, all of us have had some sort of experience where we have a confessional truth into which we lean and upon which we rely that does not always dovetail so easily with day-to-day -day experience, especially within the midst of inexplicable agony. Uh, and so that's the beginning and ending in their contrast. Within the middle of this psalm, you have an oubliette of depression, and there are several themes in this psalm, but the, I think the two biggest ones are abandonment and death. He keeps coming back to abandonment and death. 
Uh, abandonment uh, is, is throughout, but verse 7 maybe is the most po- poignant verse. Verse 7, you have put my friends far from me and made me to be abhorred by them. Now, I just want to note that many of the Psalms decry the ill treatment of God's people by their enemies. They're displeased that the enemies of God uh, have, uh, um, in some ways, conquered a king or been uh, crass and, and, uh, and, and um, wicked to God's people. But here, the psalmist is crying out, saying, I had friends and I don't have them anymore. They've all turned. They've all betrayed or later they've run away. Um, Almost, it mirrors in some ways Job's experience. You may remember that Job, the iconic sufferer of the Old Testament, uh, eventually had uh, three friends uh, visit him in the midst of his pain, and they were very good for about a week because they didn't say a word. No advice, no explanations, no nothing for a week. But then they got bored. Then they got bored and started talking and trying to explain to Job why really this was just karma. I mean, he was an idiot. Uh, he did something immoral, and now he's bearing the sour. He's he's consuming the sour fruit of his own misdeeds. Uh, well, evidently in this passage, this person has been abandoned. Now, um, I want to just consider with you just for a sec how tragic and sometimes life-destroying abandonment can be, or betrayal can be, especially uh, from people that you have leaned into, people that you have not only respected but loved, shared, opened your life to. I have a, a friend um, who has a myriad of health problems, just a mile long, and, uh, but she was uh, abandoned by a very serious friend who just gave no explanation, but just bolted, and uh, that really wrecked her, and she once said to me, you know, um, Ethan, diabetes is easier than this, and she had very severe diabetes. Diabetes is, is easier than this kind of abandonment, and truth be told, she still hasn't gotten over it. That kind of abandonment just strikes right uh, to the heart. I can shake you down to your very skeleton. And, uh, and so he cries out in pain about his abandonment. But much of the language in this passage actually has to do with the issue of death. That is, the psalmist feels dead inside, and the psalmist is worried about what comes after his mortality is all used up. Yep, what happens next? So uh, in verse 4, after many references to the pit and the grave, and um, by the way, darkness, uh, darkness is my only companion, is often a biblical um, reference to death as well. But in verse 4, I have become like the dead and like the slain who lie in the grave. In other words, the psalmist, as he writes this, feels dead on the inside. And as somebody who has on occasion suffered from depression, and I know many, many of you have as well because I've talked to you about it, uh, you've often told me, you know, depression feels a little like death. It feels a little like death. How? Because you eat less. Everything slows down. You eat less. You sleep more. You isolate from other people. uh, You're numb when you used to be happy. There's a deadening quality to what the psalmist is experiencing. But he's also uh, thinking about his own physical mortality and, and and his future. And so he asks, he begins to ask a litany of questions, lots of questions, inquiries in this passage, starting in verse 10. I'll just read them. Uh, this is what he's asking God. Do you show wonders among the dead or shall the dead rise up again and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be shown in the grave or your faithfulness in destruction? Shall your wondrous works be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land where all things are forgotten? And then later, Lord, why do you cast off my soul and hide your face 
from me. So he's asking questions. He's not directly coming to conclusions, but he's asking meta questions about his future. You are the God of salvation, but does that salvation count or spill over into the next life? Is God there? Now, what we may say as Christian believers, this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, there's an obvious answer to that, of course, yes. But remember, this is within the Old Testament and the resurrection of the dead, while believed by some, was sort of a budding hope within the Old Testament. Uh, But in various places of the Old Testament, it seems that many people believe that when you died, you went to this dark and shadowy realm called Sheol, and it isn't described uh, in in a very in-depth manner in the Old Testament. But the the tone of the psalmist's questions uh, may connotate, we're not sure, almost a negative answer, pondering, is this even possible? Is it possible that the God of salvation could leak salvation into the next life? Now, the psalmist can't sense, it seems, security of that in this moment. So he's asking questions, asking questions about what is to come, lots of questions. And I want to just note, friends, that questions, serious questions about pain and even about what is to come in the future, that he's so destroyed by his current experience that he is just a a completely open book when it comes to God. Questioning God, friends, isn't necessarily wrong. It's in the canon. But it depends upon the energy behind the question. Let me say that. Uh, You remember Job was uh, asking in a myriad of ways, why God? Why has this suffering befallen me? But why God can be asked in one of two ways. Why God can be an honest inquiry. You know, why? I thought that things were going well. I've tried to live into truth incredibly imperfectly, but that's been my aim. I, I thought things would have turned out better for me. Why hasn't it? That's different from asking why as if it's an accusation against the heavens. Sort of a shaking your fist at God. Why? In other words, you owe me, and you owe me better than you've done me. That there's something aberrant about your character, and that's why I've inherited what I've inherited. It's a different thing. It's like um, uh, my, my wife, who uh, has one of two ways of asking me why the dishes weren't done, right? It's either, honey, uh, uh, why didn't you get to the dishes? Or, Ethan, why? And uh, I know the tonal difference. Well, in Italian, you can't mistake it. It's very obvious. Um, one is about honest inquiry. Like, I'm willing to understand, but I'd like to understand because I'm in a hell, you know, I'm in a lot of pain right now. Versus there's something wrong with you and this damned created order that you made that is warring against me. It's that kind of energy behind the why as accusation question. But I simply want to note that this agonized prayer with all of its questions is completely faithful, canonical, and even exemplary. It's in the Bible for a reason. It gives expression to a lot of internal agony that we experience, and you are allowed to communicate that to the heavens. And so this is not unorthodox, nor is it uh, the psalmist crying out um, without any hope. All of this lament, even though it ends on a downer, all of this lament is addressed to the God of his salvation. And even if you can't, in the end of your prayer, come up with something happy to say, 
God receives it. Because he's the God of your salvation, whether you're feeling it that day or not. It's still true. Um, now, I want to simply say that's the beginning and the end, and there's a few themes in the middle about abandonment and death and the questions that he's wrestling with. But now I want to offer a pastoral landing place to you. I want to speak in this closing word to the agonizing among us tonight and to the, those who love people who are in the midst of agony. So whether you or somebody you love is in the pit of despair, feels like the walking dead, I have a word for you. So let's talk about the people in this room who are agonizing right now, and many of you are, uh, because you have been suffering for you know 15 years with some sort of very serious chronic mental health issue, and you've gone to all the doctors and you've taken all the pills and it's not disappearing, or you have a marriage that feels absolutely unsalvageable, or you had this dream that you know your vocation would have taken off by now, or that uh, you, you, your family life would have had a certain tone and tenor, and that's never materialized. In fact, just the opposite of your dreams have come true. Or you had, somebody told me recently, you had four loved ones die in one year. Four key people in your life vanished. Or, you know, you've been in therapy for what you thought was a fairly minor issue, and you've discovered you've opened a Pandora's box, and you're more haunted than you've ever realized. Um, what do you do? when you're in the midst of that kind of agony? Well, uh, let me mention just a few things, and one of these might help you. First, please know that the witness of sacred scripture gives you permission, more than permission, encouragement to speak your sadness. Speak your sadness. We are a religion of non-containment in that sense, not sort of a stoic, um, you know, white-knuckled, stiff upper lip thing, but to be able to offer up your agony, to articulate your agony, is a wonderfully cathartic thing to do. It doesn't solve everything, but it doesn't hurt, and it often helps. So scripture gives you permission to use your voice in that way. Also, and this may sound counterintuitive for people that are in the thick of despair or depression, uh, and it may sound like the law to you, but it's the first use of the law, so just hear me out. This is it. Do what you can do. Do what you can do. Uh, that might not mean a lot right now. But in the throes of depression, our emotional and physical mobility is limited, but it's not altogether limited. So I would say that if you can, uh, simply do something simple like get coffee with a friend, mow the lawn, cook a meal, paint a picture, write a poem, go to church, even go through the motions. But do things that get you into the stream of life, because the more you do that, the less um, inwardly um, spiraled you can become, because it draws your attention elsewhere to things within the stream of life. Also, in the midst of agony, don't burden yourself with trying to discover all the reasons for your suffering. That's for another day. Right now, you just need the energy to get through what, you've, what you need to get through. You can expend theological mental energy at another day. Call me, we'll talk. But that's the next point. Call me, we'll talk. Um, really, call any of the staff at any point when you are in this kind of ab abject horror show because you probably, um, friends, I can speak from personal experience, can't get through deep depressions on your own. You don't have to. Uh, we've all dealt with this kind of pain in one form or another and would be more than happy to meet with you at any point. Pray with you, listen to you, and help where we can. And lastly, please realize in the midst of agony, the gospel is still true for you whether you feel it or not. 
I had a friend who once told me, Ethan, it doesn't feel like any of this is true anymore. And I said, don't worry. God is like the Atlantic Ocean. You cannot believe in the Atlantic Ocean, but the Atlantic Ocean is in fact still there. Um, Similarly, when we are faithless, he is still faithful. When we have lost it, he doesn't lose us. His grip is pretty tight. Um, But the gospel is still true for you, whether you feel it currently or not. Our religion, after all, encircles the ultimate antagonized man. The man least deserving of derision was betrayed by a pupil, abandoned by his apprentices, hated by his country, excommunicated by his religion, condemned by politicians, exchanged for a revolutionary murderer, tortured by brutes, hung naked to die, spiked into wood, and calls out to God about his forsaken status on the cross. When you pray, that is who you pray to, the central sufferer. In other words, in Christianity, hurt is a bridge to Christ, not a wall separating you from Christ, because he is the wound for all of us, the wounded of the world. When you pray, you pray to him. And this, of course, means, friends, that your fragility is not your damnation. It's, in fact, your connection to that centrifugal sufferer. Something for the agonized tonight. Now, something for uh, those who minister to those in agony, those who love those who are in agony. Being around agony can be, at times, very disconcerting because you might not know how to help, what to say, or their wound that they're expressing might remind you of your wounds which have gone unattended to. So it can make you uncomfortable, make me uncomfortable. Um, Here's what I would beg of you when you're assisting or coming alongside those who are in the midst of agony. Please don't give them some sort of cheap verbal placebos because you don't know what else to say. Something like, well, you know, this won't last forever. Or this will be used by God to make you wiser than you are now. True, maybe, but ill-timed. Or, you know, you have good things in your life, just pay attention to them and you'll feel better. You know, the book of Romans gives great advice, great morally shaping advice. Here's a little bit of advice from the book of Romans. Weep with those who weep. It doesn't say rejoice with those who weep so that they stop weeping and make you less uncomfortable. Instead, it says adopt the emotional state of your devastated comrades. Join them in it, incarnationally, if you will, small i. Join them in that place. Remember, at Lazarus' funeral, Jesus, who rather uncautiously labeled himself as the resurrection and the life, didn't perform a miracle without crying first. He cried with the criers. He didn't try to explain away death or evil. He simply wept. And there is a lesson to be learned there. And so I would say, friends, when you are dealing with somebody who is in the midst of agony, don't try to defend every one of your theological beliefs if the person is spouting off things that are semi-unorthodox. Don't freak out. Uh, Don't try to cheer them up in a false way. Instead, weep with those who weep. You may say, well, lots of people do that. Almost no one does that. It's extremely rare because of how disconcerting it is when somebody's in the midst of agony. Everybody tries to fix the problems of the agonized. And and if you don't do that, and instead offer them the comradeship of Christ-like suffering and weeping, you will give them a gift they will likely never forget. 
But also, a word to those who minister to those in agony. Also, some of us have a Messiah complex. That is, some of uh, us us, uh, sort of um, expect too much of ourselves. That we be able, in some ways, to fix the agony of those who are suffering. And sometimes sufferers themselves expect us to be the Messiah. Sort of a surrogate Christ for them. The problem is, we are not. We're simply human. But even as a human, without your own human limitations, you can be a great help. I I once had a a very um, upset person come to me. Nobody in this room, don't worry. Upset person come to me, uh, uh, terribly uh, soured by my pastoral care. I was concerned, of course. And uh, the person said, look, all you did for me is meet with me and then pray with me and listen to me and counsel me. And I'm like, yeah, I, guess, I did. I did do those things. And they said, well, I just wanted a lot more. And I'm like, well, tell me. Like, I'm willing to learn. Like, what? What else should? And they said, well, I don't know, but I'll think about it. I'm like, okay. But I realized in that moment, I think they wanted me to be more superhuman. And I want that of myself sometimes, too. But I'm not and neither are you. But what we can do is point people to the one who is beyond us, to pray for them in his name so that they attach ultimately to him as the source and not us as the conduit. Yeah. We point beyond ourselves to the great wound of the world, the wound uh, for the wounded. So, you know, this psalm begins in a pretty glorious manner and concludes in a pretty dark way. O Lord God of my salvation and Darkness is my only companion. Here's what I want to say. Both of these statements are true, but one is truer. There are truths, and then there are truer truths. The first truth is everlasting. O Lord God of my salvation. The second truth, darkness is my only companion, is in the process of evaporation, giving way to something even more lovely. To quote the pained, inquisitive psalmist in verse 10, Do you show wonders among the dead, or shall the dead rise up again and praise you? Good question. But as it turns out, yes, God does wonders among the dead. Allah, 1 Corinthians 15 If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, Van Gogh's sunflowers triumph over his suicide. These last words from the poet R. S. Thomas, a priest who suffered with depression for most of his ministry, once wrote a poem called "The Answer." He gets the last word. There have been times when, after long on my knees, in a cold chancel, a stone has rolled away from my mind, and I have looked in and seen my old questions lie folded in a place by themselves, like the piled grave clothes of love's risen body. They took your life, they could not take your